You are listening to Prevention is the New Cure, all things health and NHS with a political twist. And that's with me, Dr Helen Stokes-Lampard, and with Steve Bryan, MP. Hello, Helen. Episode 18. What a week. Oh my gosh, Steve. Yesterday was awesome. I was watching the news yesterday morning and I saw that sequence live when they said, OK, there's a car pulled up in Downing Street. The security <laughs> details getting out. We're not sure who's getting out now. And it is David Cameron. And I mean, nobody apart from his very close friends uh, saw that coming. What did you think? Well, I was in morning surgery and my phone sort of lit up. And I, and I had, it really was a comedic double take moment. I had to read my phone twice and then I had to open the link. And of course, you know, BBC sends you out these alerts saying something's happened and you then can't read much about it for minutes. And so I check back in after the next patient. And it was a bit of a jaw drop moment. I mean, I'm, I'm still processing whether it's a stroke of absolute genius or whether it's a desperation. I mean, you'll have your views on it, Steve, but I'm quite impressed, actually. Well, I mean, I think where it's, political genius is that it has taken the the home secretary who's been sacked off the front pages now i suspect that she will have more to say which will put mm. her back on said front pages um but it's done that i mean she the suella braverman had to go you you can't yeah. speak on your own outside of government policy outside of collective responsibility and you certainly can't set up things against the police in the way that she did. And I think the Prime Minister had resolved probably before last week's Times article that it was time for a change. And he was already always planning a reshuffle, no question about yeah. that. So for David, look, I think it's duty. I think he's been a bit bored uh, since he left office. I think he wants to help. And I think it's no more than that. I mean, being a Foreign Secretary in the Lords, you're not tied down by votes in the Commons. Yeah. You are a bit freer. And, you know, it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful gig, isn't it? That's remarkable. I mean, you know, phenomenal experience. And he's hugely respected around the world. That much has been very clear from sort of social media and stuff subsequently. And I mean, it, it, there was definitely a feel good ripple that I picked up on. I'm not sure what I mean, I'm curious what it felt like in Westminster, because obviously I was very much in the outside world and the medical world. And we'll come on to the medical changes in a minute. But it, it's. Yeah, I'm, I'm really watching with interest. I think you're right that um, we've got the Rwanda legal case coming out on Wednesday. So by the time the podcast is released, um, we'll, know that be, we'll know the outcome. Um, and I think that could be an interesting moment. But I, I think the attention will move swiftly back to David Cameron and what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. I think, yeah, really interesting. Yeah. And as you alluded to there, we do have a new health secretary. So Steve Barclay, after a fairly long tenure, yeah. in the given by the current standards, um, he, he's now become the environment secretary. Therese Coffey was was sacked out of that role. Um, yeah. So so Victoria Atkins has taken Steve's place. Yeah, I don't know Victoria. I'm not on my path. I haven't crossed with her, although several medical colleagues have worked with her on things like uh, Mental Health Act or on work around um with gender pay gap and stuff like yep. that, have spoken highly of her. What's your impression? Yeah, well, we've been in Parliament together for uh, eight and a half years, so I know her quite well. Um, she's very friendly person. She's a listener, which I think is not always the case in Westminster. 
Um, I'd say she's got a fair level of emotional intelligence, actually, as well, which I think will go down well. Um, we actually had Amanda Pritchard and Steve Powis in before the select committee this morning because we recorded oh, right. on a Tuesday afternoon in the select committee this morning. And I asked uh, my first question to Amanda was, have you met the new Secretary of State or heard from her yet? Yeah, and she said, yes, I saw her yesterday afternoon. So within... Impressive. two hours of her appointment she'd already met the head of nhs england and you know without giving away details of their private conversation which obviously she wasn't going to do I, I we established that they talked about the industrial action as the, the first thing uh, because yeah. that is the that is the biggest blocker to the waiting list which is the prime minister's number one priority in health i have to say i mean you know it might be a fresh face there might just be what's needed to move things forward um, I think it's always really difficult when parties have got incredibly entrenched in industrial action to try and break that and actually a new face at the table um, may well be um, a constructive thing that would be really great if we saw progress I mean just a couple of weeks ago we were talking that we you know we were on the brink we thought of resolution of the consultant side of the debate although Still, still sounded like juniors were still a long way from it um would be wonderful i guess it'd be great for victoria if she can get that over the line in the first couple of weeks of the consultants that would be a really good quick win and i think would, then allow people a sense to be able to move on even if it's outstanding industrial action with the junior doctors she's got to use that early yes. period to try Absolutely. And, do that. and i guess you know we will see won't we we will see whether the trade unions involved particularly the bma junior doctors committee are prepared to do business or whether it is just as as some people in Westminster fear political and you know she's got to try and use that goodwill mm. so so there and then Andrea Ledsom Dame Andrea yes. Ledsom who some experienced of you, yeah used to be business secretary used to be leader mm. of the house of commons she comes mm. in as um parliamentary undersecretary and Andrew Stevenson who was my whip until yesterday um he comes in as minister of state so presumably he may take over from Will Quince as hospitals minister but the way that it works in departments um oh yeah and Helen Waitley and Maria Caulfield they stay in in the department so the way it works crop then is that the prime minister generally sends you to a department and then the Secretary of State works out who has what in mm. the in the in the shakedown, as it's called. Mm. And uh, you know, there's a bit of horse trading that goes on. You know, I, I, I don't want that bit. I want that bit. Um, and we'll see who who's got what among the ministers and who has dentistry, for instance, which I'm sure they'll all be desperate for. Uh, and that that will be uh, that will be worked out over the coming days. Um, and of course, uh, it, now it seems like a long time ago, but only last Tuesday, only a week ago, we had the King's speech. <laughs> Didn't we? The first King, well, the, the first speech for this King, the first King's speech for the King. Yeah. I, the pomp and grandeur within the House must be an incredible thing to be part of, Steve. What does that feel like? Can you remember what it was like when you were a new MP and that yeah. happened? Oh, yeah, mind-blowing. I mean, everything is mind-blowing when you're a new MP, and it yeah, still okay. continues to be in many ways. But, you know, when Black Rod knocks on the door and then you wander down to the House of Lords, and you squeeze into this little tiny gallery at the end and sort of peer for a view of Her Majesty as it was then. I mean, you know, seeing her in the flesh, that was the first time I'd seen her uh, in the flesh. It's an incredible moment. Uh, this yeah. year, actually, for the first time in my parliamentary career, I was in the gallery. Oh, I was in the House of Lords gallery. So I was sitting up the top. Um, so I didn't do, the the walk, didn't do the walk down. And by the yeah. time you get down there, the speech has already started. Ah. 
Um, so <clears throat> being in the gallery, I saw it from the start and I saw them come in with the adorable little page boys, page oh. boys. They're not really called page boys, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> who come in and, um, <laughs> that's probably really politically incorrect as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they were all boys to be fair. Okay, okay. Um, but you know, they sort of hold the train of the queen's gown and, uh, kings, yeah, kings. Oh, just, the queen's just, 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 no, the queen's gown, yeah. uh, the king. Yeah. The king yeah. had his own. Um, but they were, yeah, they were adorable. And so, yeah, he didn't, there wasn't much health stuff in there. I mean, he mentioned, the waiting list um and he mentioned the workforce but the only bill really i suppose is the tobacco and vapes bill i mean that that we talked about that's what it's yeah. going to be called uh you know legislation to create a smoke-free generation by restricting the sale of tobacco so children aged 14 or younger can never be sold cigarettes and to restrict the sale and marketing of e-cigarettes to children so that was in there and um the medical director of nhs england steve powers uh, was urging mps this morning at our session to vote for it and good I will. Um, what wasn't in there, there was no mental health bill, which um, many of us disappointed about. I'm very disappointed at that. So much work has gone on to get that move forward. It's ready to go. And I think I think there would be bitter disappointment that that hasn't. I mean, it doesn't mean that it can't happen, but I, th- I think it's just deferred it. Well, do you reckon another year, Steve? Well, I mean, I mean, it's had a lot of pre-legislative scrutiny yeah, and a huge amount of work that's gone on go. since Simon Wesley had done the piece of work for us yeah. in the department when I was a minister there. So, yeah. you know, this is some time ago. I, I guess talking to people, talking to the former Secretary of State, and I will talk to the new Secretary of State, we've obviously already exchanged messages. I think mm. what, what our hope is, is that we can take some elements from it yeah. that we can enact through secondary legislation secondary. Yeah. or that we don't need any legislation for we mm. can do that under existing legislation so that will be the that will be the hope is that it won't yeah. all be it won't all be lost and of course you know the king always says which i love this line other measures will be laid before you which is the biggest greatest catch all uh <laughs> If, if you can imagine really. so uh, there's it's no the reason it's the et cetera et cetera bet, yeah it? yeah it's the greatest ps so he could we could we could bring the mental health forward bill forward in this session um and let's we're gonna we're gonna have a little go on that as, as a select committee we got the new sector of state before us hopefully next month assuming oh she, excellent assuming that she assumes the diary of her predecessor oh not always um, a given not always a given not always a given anyway talking of diary uh yeah. what have you been up to well, I've had quite a bit of fun since we last met. I was at one of the select 100 at Bletchley Park uh, just sort of two weeks ago uh, at that Frontier AI Summit on AI Safety and Security. So if you recall, um, about four months ago, there was a big announcement by number 10 that the Prime Minister had a new initiative to look at security and the safety of artificial intelligence, particularly the frontier end of artificial intelligence. So that's the really general, broad, open um, AI in on the back of a lot of comments and from the really clever tech people globally about this. There were serious fears about the risks that the, the tra- trajectory that we were on. Um, a fabulous group was set up of brilliant technical people, and there was a sudden realization that they needed a bit of governance and check and challenge to that. And so an expert oversight group was drawn up, and I was asked to join it. So in September, I got one of those interesting phone calls, you know, just at the time when you said, I'm not taking on any more pro bono work, I'm not doing any more advisory, I've got to focus on the day job. Um, And then something that's just too interesting to pass you by happens. 
anyway, I ended up at Bletchley Park. Oh my goodness, what a fascinating place to be. I mean, we, we we could chat for ages and that's not really about the health prevention space, so I will keep it short, Steve. But I think from our point of view, the phenomenal potential that artificial intelligence and generative AI is going to offer us in health and care and in the prevention space mustn't be underestimated so long as we get the safety and the guardrails piece right as well. And I think what we should be reassuring to people is that a lot of really clever people are thinking and working hard to make this happen. And there is a massive global desire to work collaboratively. There were 28 nations represented there. And there was a really important sort of first step declaration, the Bletchley Declaration signed. Um, and these summits will continue, although I suspect I won't get invited to too many more. It's not that I blotted my copybook, but I think my areas are a bit niche for the global bits. I think we're off to say, France what, and Korea next. I was going to say, what did you do? Um, <laughs> of course, the, the home of the code, the, the code breakers, the famous yes. World War II code breakers. I could imagine you being a code breaker, Helen. Could you? you know, if you had been around, I mean, if you'd been around in the Second yeah. World War, I'd imagine you, I could imagine you at Bletchley, you know, being a kind of very powerful woman code breaker. Do you know, there were some awesome women there. It was really great to be there and sort of feel that you were sort of treading in the path of others. But I'm I'm not sure whether I'm focused enough. I mean, I, I just love being interested in so many different things. I think they needed phenomenal concentration and focus uh, to do what they did. Um, and then you look at the other roles that women played at that time, you know, in the sort of, you know, espionage and spying and so on but my grandmother actually one of a more mundane but incredibly important level worked in munitions factory so my grandmother in south wales helped sort of fill shells in the second world war there were lots of roles that women did that uh, were perhaps unsung at the time look a couple other things and then we've got a guest today so um, we won't we won't go on too long about other stuff um, mm. but there's been quite a bit in the press that i've spotted about dementia um and there seems to be a downward trend in dementia diagnosis and this is not just domestically this is a this is in asia as well mm -hmm. and i just did you see that story it was in the ft uh, what did you think so Steve, this, this is really interesting. Do you know, we talk a lot about how much, we, how bad things are, how we need to do better. But I think this is a celebration story. Yes, there has been a measurable decline in the incidence and the number of cases of dementia. I mean, still, we've got huge numbers of people with dementia and it's being diagnosed every day. But it looks as though the improvements we're making on people's cardiovascular health by improving general lifestyle and well-being. Uh, so whether that's about you know interventions to dietary, weight, lifestyle factors, but actually um, fewer people are getting dementia. Now, dementia is a very big coverall term. You know, Alzheimer's is the commonest type of dementia, but we have vascular dementia, and the things that trigger vascular dementia which is effectively like a series of mini strokes are the same sort of things that trigger heart attacks um and, and full strokes and so all the cardiovascular disease prevention logically should reduce the incidence there so that's probably the biggest one but even that seems uh, more than researchers would have expected so yeah there's clearly a lot of research to be done so the, the research that i read said that because there's better cardiovascular health, that yeah. is likely to be a significant factor given the proven links between the two. Just briefly, what what is the what's the medicine behind the, that being linked? So that's because a, a large chunk of strokes are related to having uh, sorry, a large chunk of a dementia diagnoses are related to mini strokes where little clots go off in the brain and bits of the brain die effectively. 
due to the lack of oxygen because there's a blockage in the way. So if you reduce the chance of those little clots flying around the body, and those are the same things that reduce the chance of, you know, sort of cardiovascular well-being. So that's reducing your blood pressure, salt in your diet, uh, alcohol smoking, all those sort of things that we know are part of living well and living healthier also help to reduce a whole heap of cancers as well, we know. Um, then the added bonus is seems to be an association with reduction in dementia. However, there's got to be other things as well because this is bigger than just cardiovascular health and weight. So, um, yeah, I think we st we still don't really understand it all. Interesting. And then just just finally on this because it's it's sort of linked in a way is that I spotted this story: NHS to try out Alzheimer's disease blood tests. Yes. Study to assess whether blood tests could help diagnose people with very early Alzheimer's is being launched by the NHS. Mm. Spotting the condition much sooner would mean people could have more support and new treatments to slow the disease. Mm. The five-year project has got five million pounds funding from the wait for it people's postcode lottery <laughs> have you seen their great. tv adverts where someone seen, turns up on your door slightly annoying check? adverts but but great if they're giving money to good good causes well yeah i always think it seems like a funny old thing but if they turn up on my doorstep with a big check that would be very welcome but anyway they've given a very big uh, check to this because mm. there's a single test for alzheimer's at the moment That's and right. you can wait years for a diagnosis mm -hmm. now we talk uh, we, we might talk with our guest in a minute about blood tests and uh and cancer but mm. Blood test to rule Alzheimer's in or out? So this is, this is you know, back in medical school. So I trained in St. George's in South London. And I remember having lectures as an undergraduate from one of the pathology professors about amyloid and the various proteins related to dementia that are there and measurable in the system. Um, and so the principle behind this proposed, this hypothesized blood test is that these proteins are detectable years before there are signs and symptoms of dementia. And so if you had a test, a simple blood test that you could do that said, yeah, you've got a really, really high chance of developing dementia in the next five, 10 years. You could then target drugs for those people at that stage, which would, the problem with all the drugs that have been developed so far for dementia is that by the time people are diagnosed, it's a bit too late because people are already quite advanced. So it would be wonderful if this could come to pass, but this is early stages of research. This isn't big breakthroughs, but you know, I mean, you know, we're going to talk a lot about breast cancer later and both of our lives have been touched by breast cancer. But in the same way, both our lives have been touched by dementia diagnoses. And I've got a family member who is was a young diagnosis of dementia. And it's oh, it's a cruel, cruel illness. It, it, it robs you. It robs you of the person that you know. So it's the NHS Blood Biomarker Challenge. It's looking to accrue at least a thousand NHS patients, the Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Research UK, and the National Institute for Hair Health and Care Research, working with the UK Dementia Research Institute at UCL in London. So if you want to find out more about that, I would just Google NHS Blood Biomarker Challenge. We'll, we'll pop a link to it in our socials. Anyway, let's take a break and then we'll introduce our guest. <music> Guest time on the podcast again, Helen. Yay. Um, we have a very old friend on, and I think we're going to have a bit of a Welsh moment. Uh, well, at least with you two, anyway. Um, Delith Morgan is joining us, Baroness Morgan of Drefelin, who is also Chief Executive of Breast Cancer Now, which is the big breast cancer charity. We're going to talk about all things breast cancer and prevention thereof, of course. But I suppose the reason why we wanted to get you on, Delith, was to talk about this new anastro... How, how do you pronounce it? Anastrozole. Anastrozole. Uh, Anastrozole, of course, silly yeah. me. Anyway, welcome to the podcast, Delith. Well, it's very nice to be here. Bora da. 
Borida, Delith, it's wonderful to have you here. Great to meet. And for those who can't see what's going on at the moment, Delith and I got the memo that it was electric blue jackets or the order of the day today, Steve. So I'm sorry, you didn't get the memo, mate. Oh, I didn't get that. Damn that. No, I didn't. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, we, we talk about all things health and, and NHS and political stuff. And um, we're most obviously interested in prevention, clue in the title. Um, look, you know that, uh, you know, I've been involved in breast cancer for a long time, that I've been in Parliament. I, I lost my mother to breast cancer ooh, a few weeks before my wedding day, uh, 20 years ago this year. So, you know, it's a subject very close to my heart. And um I suppose we start with this new drug then because um, it offers great hope and it was a great story that was put out there last week and I saw you in the press release for it. Um, my my sort of instinctively cynical view when I hear those stories is how many hairs is that set running? How many people are thinking, wow, this is the moment we've all waited for? It, it, is it the moment many, many men and women have waited for? Well, I mean, Steve, it's lovely to to join you and and Helen on on the podcast and and to have a chance to talk about prevention because it is something that slips off the agenda um, very easily when there are so many pressures and demands on on the health service for today. Um, so yeah, I mean, how how important is the news? Well, we at Breast Cancer Now we've been campaigning around um, utilising drugs that have been um, off patent, and so this is a great example of a treatment that was um is part of treatment for primary breast cancer and it's licensed for that purpose but following more research it's been found to help in the prevention of breast cancer in women who are at a very high risk of breast cancer so those are important caveats there very high risk of breast cancer so it is all about moving um the treatment and uh um management of breast cancer risk uh, into the 21st century so it is it is really good news but it is a small population of people who might benefit from this and so when you you know when you're thinking about the you know the announcement last week it was everywhere it was such a big news story and i think there's lots that we could learn and i was just chatting to to Helen a moment ago about how this landed for you know ordinary people out there um, who might be worried about their risk of breast cancer and for example our helpline was absolutely inundated with people ringing uh, not surprisingly wanting to know if it could help them or their partner or their sister or their you know their loved one and and you know I can imagine and I know um, you know anecdotally that GPs have been inundated as well so it's the kind of thing where it is really good news but practically how you know how you get through to to people about the detail of what it actually means is is a tough call. Sounds like my way in there Steve isn't it? Yeah. And to death on the one hand, you know, the sort of scientist or clinician absolutely delighted by this news. And as you say, the repurposing of a drug that's already off patent, readily available, generally well tolerated is fantastic uh, and, and very welcome. And yet in terms of the dissemination, how we break the news of stories like this, I totally get the need for a sort of sensationalist big bang. Let's tell the big story. And that's what attracts the media. It has to be big and new and shiny to get the media to take an interest. Um difficulty then is exactly as you say is what that means in practice you suddenly initiate you inject a huge amount of hope into the public and you also you get the sense of dread amongst gps i mean the instant i woke up on that morning and um, my 
GP's WhatsApp group and lit up with, mm. oh my gosh, we're going to have to brief the receptionist. The phones are going to light up today. Mm. We've got a really big practice with 31,000 patients. Mm. And um, yeah, indeed. So we we had to do an emergency briefing, which was as soon as we know, you'll know, but we know nothing yet. We can't find anything. We don't know what it means. We don't know who precisely is classified as high risk. And, you know, I think... And so I get that if you if you told the five four you know the five six thousand GPs, GP practices in the country what was going on in advance, you wouldn't get a news story because mm-hmm. it would leak. But also, the minute a news story breaks, having a link to an NHS website, so mm-hmm. trusted single source of information, just just feels like a no brainer to me. I mean, I'm sure we could get somebody relatively junior to get the website with the basic mm-hmm. facts there, which I think mm-hmm. could save us all this 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 stuff. That- that is such a good point because you know people love the NHS website. It is such a comprehensive source of really trusted information, and and I think you know from a charity point of view, there is just so much more that we could do to support the NHS on this kind of information. I mean, we've got our whole organisation, our whole research community, all our our, our professional um you know professional networks they're all you know they're all really interested in breast cancer and they're all the experts and what we could we could be supporting the nhs website to have that information for occasions like this at their fingertips and and um we've we've actually had a, a recent campaign that's just been really successful actually on, on that front so with um metastatic secondary breast cancer there's a real um a real need for uh, women who've had primary breast cancer to understand what the signs and symptoms are of breast cancer coming back. Good. And this is something where GPs would, you know, rightly need need more information and, and support. Uh, and we've been really kind of um, harassing probably the NHS website people to update their information so that you can now go on the NHS site and get that information whether you're a gp whether you're a uh, you know someone a patient who's had primary breast cancer and it's all there you know what are the signs and symptoms so that's a so it's a really good learning i think it seems that from the reporting last week and of course the headline was tens of thousands of women set to benefit from nhs drug to prevent breast cancer which you know is is clickbait heaven isn't it for many but it it seems from my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong that and astrazole has been used for quite a number of years, the breast cancer treatment. But what's happened is the MHRA have now <laughs> prescribed it as a preventative option. And I think that's come through something called the Medicines Repurposing Program. And I know breast cancer yeah. now, you've been working with clinicians, researchers, putting a lot of money for years into these sorts of drugs. But what is, am I right in that? And what is yes. the Medicines Repurposing Program? <laughs> Yeah, it sounds really dry, doesn't it? But um, if you think about um, the process for um, making new drugs available through the NHS, there, there needs to be a license first and foremost, and then there needs to be uh, nice approval and, and in order for it to be shown to be cost effective. One of the problems with um, getting a license for new um, new uses is the drug company if it's gone out of patent there's no incentive in the the drug company that that held the patent that's gone out of date there's no incentive for them to put the work in to get the all the regulatory processes in hand for licensing so it means that often cheap drugs um, that could help in a new setting 
don't get the license. So we campaigned, as as you know, Steve, because I think you you supported us through it um, to get um, a, a, a group of drugs called bisphosphonates that are used in osteoporosis and can prevent the spread of breast cancer. And they're really cheap drugs. So we we campaigned to get them relicensed. Um, and we had to do a private members bill. It was a you know really massive campaign, but as kind of keeping the drip 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 um, approach of talking about all the potential for these uh, new uh, new uses, the the Department of uh, Health and, and NHS England actually did set up this new group. And anastrozole, the reason why we were so pleased about it is the first drug that has gone through this process where the Department of sorry where NHS England has pushed. The licensing with that there's no there's no drug company here pushing it it's the actual nhs england that have pushed to have it licensed so so it sounds very dry but it actually is really helpful because it means that these cheap cheap drugs um can actually get through as well as the really really expensive innovative ones we can get the the repurposed ones as well which is obviously good for 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 the nhs in terms of the cost of cost of all, all these new innovations yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, the cost of treating somebody with breast cancer purely just as a hard-nosed economic line is so much greater than the cost of providing these drugs to prevent it in women that we know are high risk. And I think, so. The, the, I guess the next question for me is, is there more we could be doing to identify the extra high-risk women? And I, I think, I know you've done a lot of work on this. Um, and secondly, I wanted to pick up, Delith, on your really important point about the... Um, informing people and providing information better for GPs and patients about secondary and recurrence. I, a conflict of interest declaration, other uh, cancer charities are available. I'm a trustee of Macmillan Cancer. And I recently did a visit, an awesome visit up to Liverpool at some of their sites. And there was a really powerful moment with a, a patient who, you know, to, uh, lived experience moment. Um, talking about how angry she'd felt when her recurrence that happened 15 years after her primary diagnosis, actually it was 17 years after, um, was initially attributed to something else. And, you know, she she couldn't seem to sort of get through to the GP. And she says herself, I didn't articulate that my real fear was that what I had was secondary cancer. Yeah. And yeah. the diagnosis had just fallen off the bottom of the list. You know, everyone had forgotten that she had breast cancer. And I think there is something really important there. So, so sorry, two points, but. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, what we've seen from from our research, it it does take, you know, several visits to a GP for a woman to be um, referred on for suspected um, secondary breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer, particularly if it's a long time after the original uh, the original primary and what we know now is that particularly for estrogen um, sensitive cancer so ER positive breast cancers uh, uh, quite a large proportion of those um, women with those type of cancers are at risk of reoccurrence about 30 percent 20 to 30 percent will go on to develop uh, metastatic breast cancer later in life and it could be as you say 10 15 20 years later so so women need to know what the signs and symptoms are but it is about how do you share that information in a supportive way and of course the GP is the one who is best you know often best placed to provide that comfort and, and reassurance and so GPs need support whether it's through you know using a flag flagging system in the records you know we support some training actually with, with Macmillan too um, looking at um, you know training and support on on them uh, on uh, online for GPs who want this and we know they want it because we've done 
research, asking GPs what would help them most of all. So there is there is lots that lots that we can do. And of course, um, the the easy way would be to make sure that we follow the nice guidance at the end of primary treatment, and all yes. women have you know they have their their information at the end of it, explaining uh, what to watch out for and and how to access support if they need it. And there's I such a what your first question was. What was your first question? Don't worry, it doesn't matter because but there are other partners gonna make there's such a legacy of women who predate current mm. guidance and stuff. And again with the GP records, the electronic records are very good from about two thousand and four mm. onwards and they're less yeah. consistent pre that. And I think yeah. you know, so I would say if you're a woman who's got a history of breast cancer, don't ever be afraid if you're in contact with your mm. GP to say, by the way, mm. the fact I had breast cancer in, you know, nineteen ninety eight, mm. it is flagged on my records, isn't it? Because I think yeah. those things because it, it, that was that, that, that digital um, ambiguous stage. I mean, it's in secondary care, I mean, there are many hospitals now that still aren't properly electronic, but at least GP records are very good from about for the last 19 years or so. Sorry, Steve, we've been having such a chat here. We've kept you out. No, I, I, I was just being educated. I usually <laughs> how it is in my home around the kitchen table when my wife and daughter <laughs> Uh, get get going on me. Um, we, we, talk, we talked about uh, we talked about a positive, um, Delith. Um, there about a month. It was September, wasn't it? In September, we heard about the drug called or known as Enertu, uh, which was turned down by Nice, and you were quite rightly very vocal at the time. Mm. It, where are we on that? And is that still a great missed opportunity? Because that could extend the life of people who are who are battling secondary breast cancer. Yeah. So that that's the other end of the spectrum here, because you're talking about um, women who have had several um, treatments for breast cancer. It's come back and they're, they're towards the end of, of what treatment is possible. And so this is a, a new, a brand new treatment and it has been turned down, um, initially turned down. And there's an important word uh, by NICE. And I think that um, I, I feel optimistic, if I dare say that, that um, they, you know, we, we have been encouraging the drug company and NHS England and NICE to, you know, to get together and really come up with a solution here. That The challenge is at the risk of being far too detailed is that the way that NICE have, um, the way that the, the methodology that NICE use for deciding whether or not treatments are cost effective close to the end of life has changed. So they now have what they call a severity um, indicator rather than an end of life criteria. So although that sounds uh, sounds similar, but it, it isn't in the way that the drugs get evaluated. And this could be the first um, drug that gets turned down under this new yeah. um, this new yeah. methodology, which would possibly would have gone through on the old methodology. So I think there's a lot of focus on this in the kind of regulatory system to say, oh, are we really sure this is the right thing? So um, yeah, definitely keeping an eye on that um, and and being we're we're being optimistic that we're getting the patient view through and um, I'm hoping that they will look again and I'm, I'm sure that that okay. that will be better news I'm so just hope. I guess just coming towards the end of our chat can we just ask you about um, what the future of breast cancer looks mm. like so the select committee as you know is doing a big future cancer inquiry at the moment we were in Singapore last month talking to them really incredible research community out there many of whom trained mm. in the NHS um, incredible political certainty and massive research budgets 
Um, what, what does the future of uh, prevention look like in breast cancer? Because obviously everybody knows the touch, look, check, and it's probably the best known um, signs and symptoms cancer, isn't it, of the lot? Yeah. Um, yeah. Although, I, although interestingly, I was in, in Africa last month as well, and uh, there were big billboards up with mm-hmm. various different symptoms, some of which I must admit I didn't know. Um, so, so there's the TLC, and then mm-hmm. there you've got the grail you've got the gallery trial and the, and the upstream mm-hmm. blood cancer tests and we saw a singaporean version of that mm-hmm. um we know that early detection is key in breast cancer we know that primary breast cancer is curable um what what, what does the future of that look like is are you engaging with the gallery trial for instance well, we, we are, uh, for in terms of the, the kind of blood test future for breast cancer, it, unfortunately, breast cancer is less, the, 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 the outlook is a bit less positive compared to some other cancers. Um, and so that doesn't mean that we're really out, but it, it's more um, at a stage where the blood tests are more likely to be able to be used for managing treatment rather than necessarily for, for diagnosing. But then in breast cancer, because, you know, lip, bluntly breasts are on the outside of the body it is possible to you know to to take a mammogram to examine a breast to take a sample so so there is the opportunity to to image breasts um, much more than other other organs in the body so I would say before we get too excited about um, you know revolutionary changes let's get the things that we know work absolutely right. So screening is at such a low take up in this country at the moment. So let's get the uptake of screening up to the best all over the country. Let's get the screening program really on the front foot in terms of its technology, the IT system, the data. And let's make sure that when um, we are ready to go to more risk stratification, so people at a higher risk of breast cancer can be screened more often earlier and later. Um, so that we, we can get um, a more targeted screening program um, in the future. That's where you'll get to early diagnosis for, you know, for almost everyone. So then, you know, that that that's I would I would start there. But also, there's more that we can do with um, understanding um, risk and helping people to understand what they can do themselves to reduce their own risk of breast cancer and we know you, know, you can't do anything about your age that's the biggest risk factor your gender that's a, you know that, that's pretty big risk factor you can't do anything about those but what you can do is you can reduce your alcohol do your best to maintain a, a healthy body weight and take exercise and so there is something else in there around what can we do as a society what can we do in education what can we do um, to be a more active you know fitter society um which i i think we haven't cracked yet um so there's so much more um and then of course there's the whole um the whole kind of treatment and maintenance for people with advanced disease who are really living a long time now and so there's much that we can do to improve their quality of life i think only i can remember macmillan uh, you know maybe 20 years ago now 15 20 years ago saying you know just you know people need to be ready for the fact that one day cancer will be a chronic condition mm-hmm. for, for for you know significant Absolutely. population we're seeing that we're there. Cancer. and yeah. so we need to be able to manage that in a way which is really, you know, it doesn't dominate people's lives. They can get on with their, you know, their lives, look after their families and, you know, be the person that they, the best person they want to be, but still manage their breast cancer. And I think that's also something that we've got to work towards. So and that's, that's 
that's a big one to crack that hasn't we haven't cracked yet before we wrap up, Steve, I just want to come in with a couple of points because Della, we, I'm sure we could talk for an hour with you. It's great. <laughs> but I had my own experience of a mammogram for the first time a year or so ago. And, you know, I was so impressed by the whole process. It is run brilliantly. You know, as so many women have been, who are, you know, get that letter for about their first mammogram, they're at their busiest times in their careers and lives. And the letter arrived, I looked at it, I went, oh my gosh, I'm speaking at a conference the other side of the country that day. And it's that sense of dread. And then thinking, oh my gosh, how long is this going to take me to sort this mess out? And mm. actually, it was one phone call, one phone yeah. call, a phenomenally helpful person, yeah. booked straight in at a time I could do. I, and I just wanted to hug the person the other end of the phone because, mm. you know, I knew it was important to yeah. do. Um, and, yeah, and it, it, it was superb. And obviously, the, the individuals who run the, the frontline screening are dedicated, fabulous individuals. And so the whole thing is is made so much easier. And that's not just me mm. saying that. There's, an all, you know, mm. legions of women would, would agree with that. But the other thing I wanted to pick up and other conflict of interest is that I'm involved in the clinical oversight for the Grail. And I think you're right. I think keeping all these um, exciting innovations in perspective is really important. And whether we can have predictive blood tests or not using you know, genomic markers is going to really help some cancers more than oh, others. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and when we get it all right, it'll help. It'll help many types. And at least it'll alert that there's something going on. But for me, I think one of the big innovations we've seen already is in radiographic interpretation of mammograms. I mean, mm. AI interpretation, so narrow AI is doing fantastic work at the moment. And Steve and I were talking earlier mm. about AI and its application in healthcare and prevention. And I think recognizing that these breakthroughs are going to get better and yeah. better so it means the accuracy and prediction of mammograms is going to improve over time and not work that, that's great so and thanks for doing all the lifestyle stuff you saved me a job <laughs> no, it's a pleasure and i think um you know it is about making sure we've got research integrated into into the health system as you know as something that is you know forever uh, you know we'll never know all the answers but if we keep looking then we'll get closer and uh, uh, for me making sure that we keep the research agenda um you know um in front of mind as well because that's that's something that we're very good at in in the uk and we need to um keep that in mind i think yeah brilliant now Delith, which do you think would be more suitable for helen and i because i was just looking at your fundraising page uh, oh, no. earlier on this morning <laughs> right so so there's charity triathlons and swims yeah there's adrenaline events helen mm. particularly said she was keen to do that uh charity bike rides charity mm. walks charity runs or golf for breast cancer now which Ooh. do you think would be best for us well <laughs> i i think the i think the adrenaline uh events you know jumping out I'm, of a plane i'm so up for that a, i think yeah. that that could be i mean the thing is you're busy people aren't you so you haven't got a lot exactly, of time to Dennis. train to do uh, a very marathon. busy very busy people so that might be a bit tricky but yeah jumping out of a, a plane or abseiling down a building or you know those kind of things that their maximum impact or not, not too much impact. well according, um, according to my uh my wife's view of my golf <laughs> any of those things would be quicker than uh how long it takes you to quote take a whole day out for golf yeah um, well yeah I, I think um yeah golf is a commitment isn't it it's yeah a, that's yeah. a lifestyle well, look, isn't it so it's yeah. great it's great to have you on i know there's going to be huge interest and feedback from what you've had to say and you know god bless you and all that you're doing for the yeah, for the chat for the sector and for people uh living with and sadly who will in the future live with breast cancer what what's the website address for the charity 
Oh, it's just breastcancernow.org. We're, we're, we're there. We're, we're on Google. All. We're easy to find. But can I just say thank you for having me? And thank you, Steve. It's good to be, um, you know, to be together again and uh, to be talking about all these issues. I know you've been a, a great friend to the charity for many, many years and to the cause. Um, and really lovely to meet you, Helen. So oh, thank you so much for, for having me. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye. There you go, Delif was in the house. Eh? Wasn't it lovely? She's a great. A Welsh loving. It was a little bit. It was a bit. You 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 missed the bit before you arrived, Steve and Delif and I were doing a bit of bonding. It was great. From Neath, from Neath, apparently. Yes. So her family are from Neath. So she was actually born and brought up in London. But uh, but yeah, family from Neath. And my dad was headmaster of the the big uh, big comprehensive school in Neath, former boys grammar school. So uh, yeah, lots of Neath associations. Great rugby town, and uh, yeah, still got friends and family there. Yeah, no, it's good to have her on. Anyway, um, we will be back in a couple of weeks for our next episode. And uh, I think one of the things the select committee is really cracking on with um, is our pharmacy inquiry, which has a big role in prevention, of course, and hypertension tests is something I rolled out as minister. So uh, maybe talk a little bit about pharmacy sometime and their role as part of primary care. Be really interested to get your view in a future episode about how they rub along with GPs. Excellent. No, no, really Um, important relationship. Yeah. yeah, but also we're doing a piece of work on men's health, which hasn't been done in Parliament for a very long time. Oh, good. Um, by a proper select committee. And we're really looking at men's health and lots and lots of issues around men's health and also men's slightly awkward subject, men's sexual health, good. Um, which, you know, is, is a difficult subject. But um, so we'll talk about that. And we've been approached actually through our social media by quite a few different men's health charities. Right. I was going to say it would be good that we had we had a guest on to talk about that, because I think, you know, you, you said slightly awkward subject men's sexual health it's not it shouldn't be an awkward subject that's part of the problem isn't it that society's made it an awkward problem but we we talk i think probably because women come in for more screening women have the babies we talk about women's sexual health it feels to me more openly than we do with men so uh, brilliant that we're going to talk about that and looking forward to it very much yeah well i'm doing an event next week with movember um, oh, fab. people will know from the the tash in mm. november but uh, they're now much more a wider men's health charity so i'm doing an event with them next week at fulham football club which is one of the only times i shall be going to fulham football club <laughs> um so, certainly personally i may go there again professionally but uh, anyway uh, on that bombshell um you can find us um on socials prevention is the new cure and you can email podcast at stevebryan.com and uh, you can get hold of me and Helen that way. And we look forward to hearing your feedback on what we've talked about and your suggestions for future episode and future questions for pod surgery, which we didn't do today, uh, but we will be returning next time. Uh, so that's it. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Steve. Good to see you. Take care. Bye. Bye.